Welcome to the Farm Answers Podcast. The Farm Answers Podcast takes a deeper look at projects funded by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture's Beginning Farm and Rancher Development Program and how they are reaching beginning farmers and ranchers. The Marine and Environmental Research Institute of Pompeii is a nonprofit based on the island of Pompeii, the largest island in the Federated States of Micronesia, located in the Western Pacific Ocean. MARIP works to provide Micronesian communities with environmentally sustainable and economically viable skills to produce locally grown products for international markets. Today on the Farm Answers podcast, we talk with MARIP's Executive Director, Simon Ellis, to learn more about their project. The Marine and Environmental Research Institute of Pompeii, or MERIT for short, um, was actually founded by the Jesuits in 1997, and uh, it was integrated into a trade school for Micronesians up until 2005 when the when the school actually closed, uh, at that point, I, I was I was asked if I'd like to take over the the facilities and the institution. I saw a need at that time for serving Micronesians in the uh, in 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 the in the region and trying to introduce new new technologies in the form of aquaculture, which is my field of study, and to help them make a more sustainable living other than uh, just fishing and. Um, and uh, sort of slash and burn farmings, which was causing a lot of environmental problems. So, so I saw that need to um, to help Micronesians uh, in in uh, in developing uh, their economy. Also, you know, we have this partnership with our with our colleagues in Hawaii. I, I'm also a faculty member at the University of Hawaii, and I'm linked to the. Um, Pacific Aquaculture and Coastal Resources Center at the University of Hawaii Hilo, which is why we have this hybrid project between Hawaii and and Micronesia. And in addition, I'm affiliated with Hawaii Sea Grant, and that has also linked me to my colleagues in American Samoa, which is also why we have this uh, link with American Samoa uh, in this particular project. So to increase the number of beginning farmers participating in sustainable aquaculture and increase the scale of production for those already farming, you provided some training and outreach pertaining to various divisions of aquaculture, the first of which is giant clam farming. How do you support beginning farmers in this area? Yeah, this has been uh, a particularly successful uh, venture for us, and and it was kind of initiated and um, during our our particular grant with with the with the uh, with the beginning farmers and ranchers. So to to assist farmers, we not we we actually have a facility uh, at Merip where we where we grow giant clams from from the egg up up to up to a size where they can survive well in the ocean. All of, all of our farming is done. In uh, in the sheltered lagoon that surrounds Pompeii, this is a um, you know we have this sort of classic sheltered lagoon that extends about one mile from the island and, and is protected by a barrier reef, making it perfect for many forms of aquaculture. We haven't had a major storm here, I think, since 1905, so it's very uh, very um, very amenable to, to 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 aquatic farming. 
So we, we engage people from the communities, but we have a big extension network. And with this network, they, you know, the, our extension agents are, uh, are Pompeian. They interact, you know, they interact with the, with the community really well. We have very deep roots in the community. And um, so we've managed to support farmers from, from the egg to the, to the clam. Um, what, what I should mention, these, these clams are, are very large animals. They're, they're actually endangered species. They're listed under the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. But they grow as uh, to each clam can grow as, as to, to a size of, of maybe 10 or even 15 pounds. They're very heavy, very big. So one clam can provide a, a meal for uh, for one farmer and their family, um, so we we had a goal to establish uh, each each farm group, which tends to be you know a couple or a family unit uh, with uh, one thousand clams each, which would equate to to uh, either the income from that clam or or a uh, or a meal per day for one thousand uh, one thousand clams. You also provided some assistance to both coral and sponge farmers. What did that assistance look like? Again, you know, we work with the farmers. Uh, these are from impoverished rural communities around Pompeii. And just to put it in, 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 a, uh, in, in context for, for, for our listeners, you know, the, the development context is very different here to many other places in the United States. The the FSM, the Marshall Islands, and Palau are what we call freely associated states with the United States. So a very close relationship, which brings many benefits to us. But these islands are very far behind the U.S. on, on the development scale. Our, our estimate is for for people living in uh, rural areas of Pompeii, where we mainly work. Pompeii is the main island in, in Micronesia, or in the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, per capita income there is only about one thousand dollars per year, not even per month. So, um, you know, in terms of, of bringing assistance to people, you know, the development context there is is, is very different. Um, anyway, so the sponge and the coral farmers, we've been working on this for a number of years, and it's actually the corals themselves. It's for me, it's a very exciting part of our work. Um, we started growing just one species of live coral for export. We now have uh, we've now developed more than thirty species of farmed corals for export. So you could equate this or think of it in terms of going in the U.S. to a nursery uh, and seeing you know the variety of plants that are grown in a nursery for sale because these are ornamental species that are exported mainly into the U.S. And um, we have a partner organization who buys those. Uh, buys those corals and they add in their own farm corals. So the company is called Ocean Research Aquariums. It's in Fort Pierce, Florida. And most of those corals actually end up in stores like Petco, which many people in the U.S. are familiar with. So if you go to a Petco near you that has marine species, you would likely see corals that were grown by, by beginning farmers in Micronesia in those stores. The sponge is a different story. Again, it's a very simple technology that we've developed. We work with probably 10 or 15 sponge farmers. Um, it's a fragmentation process where sponges are grown and then cut into smaller pieces and planted on farms. And all of these sponges, again, it's a very highly sustainable process. And the uh, and the sponges that we do grow, we have a we have again a, a link with an outside corporation in um, 
in New Zealand called New Zealand Trade Aid, and they have 30 outlets in, in New Zealand, and our sponges go mainly to them. And uh, we grow two species of sponges. So a big part of what we've done for farmers not only is helping them establish the farming techniques, giving them extension service, but also developing sustainable markets for those products, which is remarkably difficult in a place like, uh, like, like Micronesia, which is geographically very separated from the rest of the world, but economically very separated from the rest of the world in that uh, transport of products is extremely expensive in and out of the islands. Rabbit fish are an important variety of food fish in the Pacific Islands. How were you able to expand the size and number of sustainable capture-based rabbit fish farms? Yeah, thank you, Megan. We, we, started, uh, we started some years ago doing some research on how rabbit fishes settle into, uh, into the environment in, in, uh, in Micronesia. When I say settle, um, the process for the reproductive process for rabbit fishes is that they, they tend to spawn maybe two or three times a year. They come together, they release hundreds of millions of eggs. And these eggs, once they're fertilized, are swept out into the open ocean, out of the lagoon. And then 30 days later, the baby rabbit fishes come back around the new moon and they settle onto Pompeii's reefs, the seagrass areas, and they literally come in in their hundreds of millions. And the environment in Pompeii or anywhere else around the, uh, around the Pacific where rabbit fishes settle only has uh, a certain uh, what we call a carrying capacity. So maybe 100 million fish come, but a, uh, only perhaps 10,000 or maybe even 100,000 might have a, be able to find a home. So in that, in that period of about one week, those fish are either eaten or they die of starvation. So what we've developed is a, is a method where during that period where these, where these rabbit fishes recruit to the reefs in Bombay, we can collect them, stock them into cages, and start growing them for farmers. So we started, we started doing this research and then training farmers to get involved and uh, then experimenting with, I think we started with about six species of rabbit fishes, and now we've narrowed it down to one particular species that's very easy to grow very, and grows very well in culture conditions. So we started with a you know, training program, the research, the applied research the training program with the farmers. And uh, then the establishment of cage farming. Again, we did some practical and applied research on our own facilities. And now we've been rolling it out to, to engage farmers in, um, in growing rabbit fishes and also helping them with some, some market research. Another piece of your project involved some work with farmers in the American Samoa. How are you helping beginning farmers on this island around tilapia farming? Yes, in American Samoa, uh, tilapia farming is, uh, is, is quite successful, quite well established. The access to the marine environment there, even though it's a, an island, is not, so, is not as uh, available as, as we, we have in Micronesia because they don't really have a protected lagoon. So many people are practicing aquaculture in their backyards or small ponds uh, using fresh water, which is very abundant there. So we, we have teamed with, with our partners at the American Samoa Community College where they have, a, they have a small hatchery for tilapia and they provide um, outreach and extension to farmers. So more than anything, we've helped to support uh, that hatchery program 
and also provided some funding for stipends for farmers so they can get necessary equipment where uh, where where they need it or and to make sure they have extension assistance when they need it. The final area you provided assistance and education in was with bivalve shellfish farming, specifically in Hawaii and the American Samoa. How were you able to help beginning farmers in this area? Yeah, the shellfish program um, is run mainly out of uh, our our partner organization, the Pacific Aquaculture and Coastal Resources Center. And our co-director, Dr. Maria Haas, is a shellfish specialist from uh, who's based at the university. Now, at, so the Pacific Aquaculture and Coastal Resources Center, which we shortened to PACRC because it is a very long name, is uh, they have their own shellfish hatchery there. So they're able to produce seed for farmers and, and also to provide extension assistance. Now, in the state of Hawaii and American Samoa, regulations and permitting are far more rigorous than in Micronesia. So we've actually used some of the funding from Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program to support a permitting specialist to help walk uh, prospective farmers and beginning farmers through the permitting process which has been something of a bottleneck to, to the development of successful shellfish farming. So the, the, uh, the, the bottlenecks there are, are more policy-driven than technically driven. Um, so we're trying to approach the problem through uh, helping with policy and, and helping with, with permitting for farmers. We've also engaged there with a organization called KUA, which is a native Hawaiian uh, entity, and they've been very active in trying to put shellfish uh, bivalves, oysters, edible oysters primarily, and some clams into native Hawaiian fish ponds. Native Hawaiian fish ponds have a uh, have a special um, a special designation in the state of Hawaii, which often allows uh, allows them to to sidestep or to get uh, more uh, preferential permitting procedures. So this has been quite successful in that regard. One of your project objectives was conducting cross-site visits for trainers to view diversifying commodity production and techniques in different areas. As with many projects funded in 2020, you ran into some problems. What was this portion of your project supposed to look like? And were you able to eventually accomplish some of these site visits? Yeah, it was I probably take. Uh, I, I could probably put my hand up and say that of all the people in in our beginning farmer and rancher development program family, I was probably the most impacted by by the pandemic. I left Micronesia in March of 2020, and I wasn't able to return until September of 2022. Um, some two and a half years later, there wasn't one single case of COVID in the Micronesia region for almost two and a half years. And they closed the borders entirely. So I spent uh, I spent the entire pandemic in Hawaii, um, unable to return to Micronesia. Um, anyway, so that aside, we we had to pivot pretty strongly when when we saw that the I mean American Samoa themselves were, the the borders were closed for more than two years. In Hawaii, we were restricted in movement uh, at least within the first year until vaccinations came out. So what we did actually is we, rather than trying to go online and do 
do Zoom related kind of calls. It, we didn't th- we didn't feel it was feasible because most of our farmers are not not necessarily connected to the internet. Many of them are not uh, literate in in the use of technology. So we talked to the to the beginning farmer and rancher development team and decided that we would we would reprogram most of the travel money to go to towards assisting programs within those areas. So American Samoa, for instance, most of our assistance for them was going to be cross-site visits, site visits, and, and, and also like remote technical assistance. So instead of that, we took the money we had for travel and we actually put it into programs on the ground for them in the, term, in the form of stipends and materials and, and putting money into the hatchery, for instance. So in some ways... As much as useful as the cross-site visits would be, we sort of felt like the money was used very, uh, very wisely in terms of on-the-ground, tangible uh, materials and assistance. Especially with the stipends, we were encouraged by the beginning farmer and rancher development team to sort of focus on stipends and trying to help uh, farmers with tangible equipment and and supplies. With the Marine and Environmental Research Institute of Pompeii providing so many opportunities for beginning farmers, can you tell me about a beginning farmer that was able to start farming or grow their farming operation because of your program? Yeah, I, you know, I, I really sort of, I, I sort of would like to sort of go back to the giant clam farming program that we have. And uh, we, we have had a, you know, we have been able to engage more than 20 family family units in in this program so i think overall it's it's very much a uh, very much a success and sort of rather than i think focusing on any one particular farmer you know one of the things we we really we really looked at is is also kind of overcoming some of the social and cultural barriers to engaging women in in farming you know we've done this by often encouraging kind of family units to go out and farm, but also like husbands and wives to farm together. Um, there are like certain cultural, uh, cultural barriers to, to men and women interacting uh, in certain spaces in Micronesia. So we've sort of been able to, to overcome some of those by we have, a, uh, we have a young lady who works for us who understands some of the cultural barriers and she's helped us to overcome many of those. But I, I think in terms of success, we've managed to open, you know, open farming to women um, who, who have not been able to participate in the past in, in this kind of activity. And this has helped them, A, to be more, more, more involved in farming, but also to, to share in some of, the, uh, some, of the, some of the benefits of the resource, either, uh, either protein for their family or sales of the clams. So again, I think rather than focusing on one one particular person, because we, we do feel it's been very successful across a broad spectrum in engaging more than 20 families in, in farming. Um, and I should, again, try to put this in context for you, Megan, in that, you know, these farms would be equivalent to maybe like a, a small family plot rather than a large farm. So you might equate it in somewhere in the mainland U.S. for for families having uh, sort of like a market garden type plot where they would grow vegetables for themselves and also to sell. But instead of growing vegetables, they're actually growing these, uh, these large giant clams, which are a, a very important source of protein for families here. Yeah, that's a great example of, of success for your program. 
What is one piece of advice you have for someone considering participating in one of your programs? I, you know, we often have, uh, we do often have farmers, I, I think maybe, uh, maybe the expectations are either too high or, uh, or maybe we don't convey expectations uh, adequately to, to our farmers. And sometimes then we have people engage and then, and then they, and then they end up not being, not being involved. But uh, farm, farming is, a, is something people have to do every day. So we try to encourage people to understand that uh, they need to, you know, if they're going to engage in, in aquaculture farming, it's, it's the equivalent to their gardening or farming on, on a terrestrial level in that they, they need to engage at least a small amount almost every day or at least sometimes per week in the same way that all of us who farm or garden, you know, have to take care of, uh, take care of things constantly in order to have a good product. Now, your program is definitely very specific and unique, but do you have any advice for someone looking to implement a similar program in their state or region? Yeah, I think, I, I, you know, I think, I think the, method, the methodologies are, um, a standard across the board, uh, Megan. You know, for us, I mean, I, I came uh, I came from an extension background. I, I studied at Louisiana State University, and when I when I first went there, you know, the facets that make up an extension and development program are, are consistent across the board. There was a demonstration farm. We did applied research. We had education, and we did extension. And those are the things for anybody involving themselves, even in any kind of beginning farmer and rancher program, whether you're linked with the university or not. Here at Merip and also at the Pacific Aquaculture and Coastal Resources Center, we have a facility. We have demonstration farms. We have the ability to produce seed or seedlings for, for farmers or to assist them with on-site training. Um, and then also we have a, a very very highly developed extension network and that extension network is appropriate to each area. So for instance, here in, in, in Micronesia, you know, just in the state of Pompeii, we have people speaking seven different languages. So if we were to engage somebody from another island who speaks another language, we would engage an extension agent from there and train them so that they can, they're culturally ingrained in the society, but also they can speak the language. The same exists in Hawaii and American Samoa in that our extension agents in, in Hawaii are often native Hawaiians and they've been trained. They may speak the language, but even if, it, even if the language is English, they understand the cultural background of where people are living and, and doing, doing their work. And with that, I think it, it, it leads to a, to a higher rate of success. So I, I think for all of us, and I, I noticed this when I went to the beginning farmer and rancher development program, the directors meeting, many of the presentations, the, uh, I was amazed by the success of so many of the presentations. But the one thing many people did is they formed incubators, they, they got land, they started farming on land, they brought people to the land, they trained them right there. Um, so I think having having a facility, having demonstration facilities, and 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 having a really appropriate extension system is key to the success of, of any program such as this. That's great advice. Now, as we close out the episode, is there a place that people can go to find out more about your program? 
Yes, there is. We we have a website, uh, and it's meritmicronesia.org, and also the Pacific Aquaculture and Coastal Resources Center has uh, has a website. And I I'm sorry, I don't have it uh, on my at my fingertips, but also I can be reached at uh, at uh, email on uh, at sclsathawaii.edu. Does your program have any social media that people can follow to keep up with your program? We do. We do have a Facebook page, and it is uh, it is actually uh, the Marine and Environmental Research Institute of Pompeii. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing your project with our listeners. Yes, yeah, a pleasure, and thank you very much for for allowing us to to be part of this. We're very passionate about this project, and uh, we uh, we really love what we do. And thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Farm Answers podcast. This episode was hosted by Megan Engel. To learn more about this USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture's beginning farm and rancher development program project or other BFRDP projects, visit farmanswers.org. The Farm Answers podcast and farmanswers.org are funded by the United States Department of Agriculture National Institute of Food and Agriculture and are a product of the Center for Farm Financial Management at the University of Minnesota.